Hi listeners, it's Camille here. Just wanted to let you know that the audio quality on my track is going to be a little bit lower because this was recorded on the road. Hope you enjoy the episode all the same. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Welcome to a very special anniversary edition of Pawn Order. It's Peter Sankoff here, and I'm here with my co-host for one entire year on episode number 25, Camille Opchuk. Hi, Peter. I can't believe that it's been a year. Can you? I can't believe it's been a year um, until I remember how exhausted I am from all the episodes we've done. And then I realize it has been a year. We've made it, Camille. I feel like we should sing. Well, I don't think anyone wants to hear me sing, but I will say it's pretty cool to be able to say that we've done this every couple of weeks, more or less. And I'm really just glad we didn't commit to doing this weekly. <laughs> um, I think of all the many decisions we made about this show, the best decision we made was not to do it weekly. I I really admire and almost envy the people who do do it weekly, because I would say, Camille, that if I had the opportunity and I had the time to do it weekly um, in this ideal world where I'm preferably retired, um, it would be great. But man, it's 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 hard. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. Retired or maybe like just clone us and have some podcast clones who just do the podcast. That would also work. Yes. Now I am especially, I am celebrating this anniversary. You may be able to hear this listeners that I am celebrating this anniversary for this anniversary. Our lovely producer, Shannon Milling got me a wonderful new microphone. So if I sound like 25% clearer than Camille, it's because of the microphone. So thank you, Shannon, for this lovely uh, gift from uh, Pawn Order headquarters. Happy anniversary to you and honor one year anniversary we actually have our very first podcast dedication. And this is kind of a cool thing, Peter, because we're dedicating the podcast to a dog named Angus. And Angus's dog dad, Ben, actually came up with the name Paw in Order for the podcast. Yes, he did. And he has been threatening us with litigation ever since. <laughs> he, he literally came on Twitter and said, you promised me a dedication. And I'm going to say that last time, Camille forgot. This was not me. Camille forgot to do the dedication. So Ben, um, you can call off your your legal goons. We have done your dedication. And on a serious note, we are very appreciative uh, for the episode and the name of Pawn Order. And Angus, I am sure you are a wonderful uh, dog who keeps Ben happy. So happy anniversary. You get a special podcast episode, Angus and Ben. And you know what's kind of cool about this, Peter, is uh, like I remember interacting with Ben on Twitter when he first suggested his name when we put that call out. But that was it until over Christmas, I was at a holiday party in Ottawa with some political type people. And Ben was there. We'd never met, but he was like, hey, I named your podcast. Yeah. So it was kind of special. I remember that story. And uh, yeah, I, I remember... You know, it does seem like a long time ago. It is nice to reflect on our one-year anniversary. But I, I do remember 
um, getting Ben's suggestion for Paw and Order and just really getting excited about it. And and to be honest, the name really did set the tone for the whole thing. And, and there was definitely a lot of excitement in uh, calling it Paw and Order. And I got to tell you, Camille, I mean, really, this is our one year anniversary episode and we couldn't have like more exciting news because like we're not just talking about Paw and Order, but Animal Justice, who, of course, uh, is the, you know, I don't know if it's sponsor. They're 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 the executive producer of this <laughs> podcast. We've got some really big news about Animal Justice. That's right, Peter. Animal Justice is hiring a full-time staff lawyer. We've just posted this job position this week, and it's a huge moment for us. Uh, to date, we've operated with me as a lawyer on the team. Um, you're on the board, so you're not working full-time for the organization. Anna Pippis is part-time and does our farmed animal advocacy work. But this is the first time that we've hired and, and had any full-time person devoted exclusively to lawyering on behalf of animals. So it's a huge moment, and we're going to be able to do even more cases, even more campaigns, pass even more laws. I am so excited. Yeah, I was uh, very close to applying for this position, Camille, and then I just realized I'd have to be working under your direction, and I, I just thought of the conflict that I would bring to the pawn order podcast so i just decided for the good of the podcast camille to withdraw my name from the running well that's really selfless of you thanks i guess <laughs> anyway on a more serious note again we're very excited i mean i cannot be more excited i'm going to be a part of this hiring process and uh we are excited to have our team grow because frankly we've got a lot of work and we've got a lot of work for uh, a wonderful uh legal mind someone who's who's really excited and and keen to engage in uh, our struggle to make the laws better for animals that's right. So you can visit our website, animaljustice.ca. Check out the post in the blog section. We'll share it in the show notes as well, so you can check out that posting. Uh, please apply if you're interested. Chat with me if you want more information and share it around to any contacts that you think might want to apply. Absolutely. Um, that is that is great, great news. And uh, now, Camille, I believe you have another announcement for us, something going on in Toronto. You're next. Yeah. Of the yeah, so we're uh, Animal Justice is co-hosting an event in Toronto on February 11th, uh, featuring Professor Justin Marceau of the University of Denver. He's written a book called Beyond Cages, which is, is about animal law and criminal punishment. And it challenges the idea that we should be incarcerating people who abuse animals um, to, to the extent that we are, and that that should be a focus of the animal law movement, uh, based on the idea that it's inconsistent with social justice ethics and the idea of animal liberation. Uh, to be putting people in cages. So there's a lot more to it than that, but he's coming to town to speak. We are co-hosting the event uh, along with the Animal Law Lab at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law and uh, the student clubs at both U of T Law and Osgood, the, the student animal justice clubs. So please check it out. I'm going to post a link again in the show notes, but the talk is February 11th. That's a Monday 6.30 p.m. in the Jackman Law Building at U of T Law. That's room J125. Sounds awesome. Sorry I can't be there. I'm actually coming to Toronto that week, but I won't be there till the Thursday. But that would have been great to catch up with Justin and hear about that book. It sounds uh, really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading it soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe next time. And uh, at this point, we are going to say a few words about our amazing podcast sponsor, The Grinning Goat. I am very excited about The Grinning Goat. In particular, I should point out that tomorrow 
I will be at Grinning Goat headquarters uh, in downtown Calgary, and I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited to see the store for my first time. But even if you can't see the store, you can certainly support the store and support us indirectly by buying from the Grinning Goat, and they are Canada's vegan fashion boutique. They ship across the country. They have all sorts of clothing, beauty products, various uh, great vegan apparel as well. Some wonderful, they have a few chocolates here and there, lots of vegan stuff. It's a wonderful store. There is an incredible uh, amount of stuff. As I said on the last podcast, I'm I'm currently wearing my vegetarian shoes from the Grinning Goat. And uh, I don't I don't think I have my vegan socks on, but uh, I, I did buy those uh, on my last order. And the best part is there's an exclusive discount code for Pawn Order listeners. Go to thegrinninggoat.ca and the discount code for Paw and Order listeners is Paw15. Paw15, you can get 15% off. So please support them and you'll support the podcast in turn. Okay, Peter. Let's dig in. We have, uh, as always... Lots of news. Lots of news. All right. The first story just came out today, and it's a pretty stunning story. The Edmonton Humane Society decided in December at a board meeting that it would pull out of enforcing provincial animal protection laws. It doesn't receive funding from the province of Alberta to do this work. Uh, As a private charity, it raises funds on its own, and I believe it received some minor amount from the city of Edmonton. So it's getting out of the enforcement game. It's so interesting to me, Peter, because I, I applaud them for this decision. I think that like a lot of humane societies and SPCAs, they've been put in this really difficult position and they feel like they're not able to do the job that the animals deserve. Yeah, look, when this came out, I went on a little tweet storm and there's no question that a lot of Albertans and certainly Edmontonians, their first reaction might be, oh my God, this is a bad thing. And frankly, I'm not convinced it is a bad thing. Um, I think that the uh, Edmonton Humane Society and frankly, many humane societies across the country have for too long been shouldering the province's burden and allowing uh, the province to essentially treat animals as, I don't even want to say second-class citizens, as 10th-class citizens by essentially abdicating their role in investigating animal offending. And I think that's a really troubling thing because I think what it does is it, it forces the Humane Society, amongst other things, to make some really terrible choices about the type of work that they're doing. And they feel forever essentially wedded to this role. And, and they find it really difficult to step out of this role of uh, investigation because they've had it as, you know, it's been going on for so, so long that they've had this historical role in investigating animal abuse. And I think there is a really good discussion to be had about whether that should continue. And unfortunately... If you continue to give somebody something for free, it is very difficult to keep going back to them and say that now they should begin to pay for the service that's being offered. And I think the Edmonton Humane Society has finally recognized that they can do better work for animals by concentrating on their work as a shelter, by concentrating on their educational role in the community, and frankly, by doing advocacy work, which may include, Camille, explaining to the province why they need to have paid investigators. I do hope that's a conversation that's going to be had because I think it's a really necessary one. This is not just unique to Alberta. If you've listened to this podcast at all, you would have heard us go on about enforcement models and mechanisms. And in Ontario, we're facing similar issues where the Ontario SPCA is considering getting out of some or all enforcement. And we now have a legal ruling saying that the way this private charity system is set up is constitutionally problematic. So stay tuned. I'm sure this won't be the last we hear. 
No, and and of course we, you know, for people who are thinking that the sky is going to fall here because the Edmonton Humane Society has got out of this particular uh, activity, it's worth pointing out that they're not the first to do so. I mean, there are SPCA's across the country, I believe in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, that have essentially said we're not doing this anymore. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Royal Newfoundland Constabulary and the RCMP enforce the laws in Newfoundland at this point. The SPCA and Humane Societies no longer have any involvement. And there's other agencies even within the province. I mean, the Edmonton Police Service certainly has the authority to enforce these laws. I looked it up, Peter, and the Edmonton Police Service has a budget of $337 million this year, and it's going up to over 440000 in the future as per a funding request. Uh, you know, so interesting that that's what the city budgets for law enforcement. Um, you know, perhaps a little of that could be devoted toward animals. And, and I should point out that I also believe that there are ways to create different models. I'm not sure, you know, there are a lot of options out there. There are a lot of pro- places in which the humane societies continue to provide a secondary role. Instead of providing an investigative role, they provide a support role, for example, for various law enforcement agencies. And quite frankly, I think there are more creative ways to fund investigations. Um, what drives me crazy is, you know, the basic idea that you know, let's be clear, the Edmonton Humane Society is not investigating um, agricultural matters to begin with, and very few people actually do. And it's always driven me crazy that, you know, regulation of agricultural entities has been resisted for a long time, partially on cost grounds. And it just strikes me as so unimaginative if we cannot create some, you know, types of user fees to actually control and, 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 and ensure the health and welfare of the beings that you're supposedly trying to protect. Like, it's not like we don't have those types of user fees in other scenarios. You know, I'm a member of the Law Society. Guess what? I pay user fees so that there can be an enforcement mechanism within the Law Society to regulate my conduct. Sure, anyone who has a driver's license will pay a fee upon renewing that driver's license, and that goes toward uh, the system that administers it. And, and I just think we need to be creative about thinking about if we really want to do something for animals, we need to actually do something. We shouldn't just continue to say, let's keep up with this inefficient, unworkable system where I know, having spoken in the past to members of the Edmonton Humane Society, that they feel like they can't do the job properly. They feel like they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And I think the decision that we saw uh, coming down today was just essentially an expression of that frustration. Yeah, yeah, a very fair expression. We'll keep you posted on the latest on on this news. I'm I'm sure this is not the last we'll hear about enforcement issues. Okay, let's move on to uh, our second news item, which is this tangentially affects animals in the sense that we have a new federal justice minister, Camille. And as we know, there happen to be a bunch of bills going through parliament um, involving animals that the justice minister is going to be responsible for dealing with. Um, we can now say goodbye to Justice Minister uh, Wilson Raybo, and maybe it's an appropriate time to reflect upon uh, her legacy insofar as animals were concerned. Camille, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, her legacy is um, mixed would be a kind way of putting it. Uh, just uh, Justice Minister, former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould was uh, involved in not supporting Bill C-246. That was Nathaniel Erskine-Smith's animal cruelty bill that would have updated our laws and outlawed shark finning and outlawed certain fur imports as well and fixed the bestiality loophole. So that was something that was killed under her uh, direction of that department. 
And and furthermore, of course, Camille, as we've reflected on many times, and I'll try to keep very short, it was essentially under her direction that, you know, the liberals as a group decided not to support the bill. And their reason for doing so was some comprehensive reform to the code that would include animal cruelty offenses. It's a reform that we haven't seen and it's nowhere on the horizon. No, the only thing that uh, did happen under her regime was that the uh, Liberals put forward a bill that would outlaw bestiality, so would close the bestiality loophole, and would close a couple additional minor loopholes around animal fighting. But this long-promised review of the animal cruelty provisions has been nowhere to be seen. So the new Justice Minister, Peter, David Lametti, he's from Montreal. He's a former McGill law professor, and you probably know uh, his reputation better than me, but... A lot of lawyers who I really like have been applauding this uh, point, appointment. I have never heard of him before. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a big, it's a big academic world. There's quite a few profs I've never heard of, but I'm sure he's very nice and very good. So I can't comment on that. Well, I guess we'll we'll wait to see as these bills move forward. What positions his his ministry takes? Yeah, I just just to close the book on the uh, former justice minister. I just want to say. Um, I will give one point to her credit um, that when I, I will say at the very least to her credit, um, when she she spoke on the bestiality bill, um, which the, the only reason I know this is because it's in our end of year video. Uh, but when she did speak about the, the bestiality bill, I will give her credit that she did not try to make this about a bill to protect children. She did not make this at a bill to say that it was immoral. Um, she essentially said sexual conduct with animals is necessary to protect the animals. And I, I thought I thought her speech on that was very favorable and the type of thing that can be used going forward to advance greater protections for animals. Yeah, that's a very fair comment. I appreciated her remarks as well. And to be completely fair to her, it's, it's never the decision of one minister in, in government these days. It's a cabinet decision to kill legislation or not. And so it's probably unfair of us to put the entire blame on her shoulder for Bill C-246's demise. But nonetheless, there we are. So I'm crossing my fingers that we'll see more out of this justice minister. There, there's not a lot of time before the next election, but we do have a number of bills being considered. And uh, we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Now, Camille, we got a couple of stories. Whoa, we're going abroad. We're heading across, across the pond, as it were over to uh, Switzerland. There's apparently a bunch of big news going on there. Yeah, there's two stories that caught my eye recently from Switzerland, so I thought we'd throw them both in. Uh, the first story, Charlotte Blattner, who's a Swiss animal protection lawyer now in Canada, posted this on Facebook earlier today, which is why I saw it, and I believe that Charlotte has been involved in this. And Charlotte, if you're listening, maybe drop me an email and fill in uh, more details for us. But what seems to have happened is that advocates in Switzerland have been looking for ways to advance the idea of animal rights in their country, uh, not just animal protection. So Swiss already Swiss law is already quite good as far as the rest of the global community goes when it comes to animals. But advocates were looking for a way to to develop some some more rights based provisions that aren't just protections or welfare mechanisms. And uh, Swiss citizens have the ability to propose issues for voting in a referendum. And so some Swiss animal advocates uh, put some provision forward in the Baselstad canton, which is like a state or a province, uh, seeking a referendum on granting some types of rights to primates. And I guess what happened next is that uh, the Swiss or the, the parliament in that 
canton has to approve the provision as something that's legal and within the canton's jurisdiction to be voted on by citizens. And the parliament said, no, it's not. You can't uh, put this forward because this is a matter, matter of federal jurisdiction, not for a canton. And these animal advocates challenged this. They went to court in Switzerland and won the challenge. So at this point, it seems to me like they are able to put forward that question of, of rights for primates to a referendum, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime we can get this sort of stuff out into the public consciousness, that's the type of... I, I wonder if the referendum is binding, Camille. Do you know that? I don't know that. I, I do know that uh, the, the idea of animal dignity was enshrined in the federal Swiss constitution in 1992 based on a referendum as well. So whether this one is binding or not, good question, and maybe some of the Swiss listeners can let us know. But I think, uh, it, I, I hope it bodes well. I think the idea of primate rights is something that you see a lot of public support for. There's very few people who would oppose that at this point in where we are in society and our thinking. So I'm optimistic, and it'll be cool to see what happens. I know someone who would oppose that, Camille, but we'll save that for our zero, because primates are a lot like plants, Camille, let's be honest. <laughs> Peter's foreshadowing <laughs> for our zero, so stay, stay tuned and you'll, you'll hear what he's talking about. They're all the same, Camille. They can all feel. Let's get this square. Yeah, okay, sorry. Sar sarcasm alert. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So we have another story from Switzerland as well. I, I like this headline. It said that Swiss experimenters are having difficulty getting experiments mm. approved on animals. Uh, because of more administrative burdens and because of various license approval conditions that are being attached to experimentation permits. So the reason I found this was interesting, Peter, uh, you know, a couple of reasons. So first of all, the story explains that experiments on animals, the number of animals used rather, has dropped by over 100,000 animals per year between 2008 and 2017. So that's over a million animals. Like, that's huge. Which goes to show you what can happen when you, when you strengthen legal restrictions. I mean, that's just the reality. Legal restrictions, even some that don't seem on the surface to act as a ban or a prohibition, which, you know, angers some animal advocates. But, like, the truth is, whenever you impose stricter uh, constraints on the ability to, to, to use animals in any way, then suddenly the costs of doing so go up and it becomes that much more difficult to actually go through with the process. Yeah, that's right. And it's huge. And, and it, again, back to this idea of animal dignity, which is now in the Swiss Constitution. Apparently, the licenses started getting more stricter, or perhaps they had to start issuing them after that provision went into the Constitution. So this is sort of as a direct re directly reflective of the Swiss legal system, um, apart from any administrative burden that, um, that's required. Uh, so I, I contrasted this, Peter, with Canada. And unfortunately, we are so far behind the Swiss and many other jurisdictions, most other Western jurisdictions, in fact, when it comes to animal experiments here, because they're uh, completely unregulated. I shouldn't say completely, almost completely unregulated. And since 2011, which is uh, the, the, the last year that the Canadian Council on Animal Care has published statistics for animal experiments in Canada, 2011, we saw just over 3 million animals used in the experiment, 3.3 million. That number has been steadily climbing, Peter, in 2014 to uh, 3,750,000. That's right. And last year, not last year, in 2017, 
four and a half million, just about 4.4 million. Mm. So that number is going up. Uh, so interesting to contrast a restrictive regime that's actually reducing animal suffering with our very liberal permissive regime that's increasing it. We need to table, this is another one, Camille, we did this last week too, we need to table this as a subject for a full episode. We, we've, we've really yet to get into this issue in any depth, and, and I have to be honest, I'm not an expert on uh, Canada's animal uh, research laws. I've, I've looked at them for various projects over the years here and there, but I, I know there are people who are experts on this, and uh, we should really bring them in and do a, a session on animal experimentation. I think that's a great idea. We'll... we'll... We'll work on that and get something to you this year. Yes, absolutely. All right. That wraps up our news section. And, and, and speaking of bringing in the experts, Camille, we went to the experts because, as you know, we've, we talked about this uh, on the last episode. We talked about the really big story that took place on the world stage, which involves uh, the International uh, Whaling Convention, um, and, sorry, the International Whaling Commission, and the decision by Japan after literally 75 years as a member of the International uh, Whaling Commission to decide to leave the organization, that's a pretty big deal. That's huge. And I'm really grateful to Cameron that he was able to join us and tell our listeners what this means in a bit more detail. And I'm excited to hear myself as well. Yes, I believe as I introduce the, the segment, you'll hear that um, um, I believe Cameron is our first repeat visitor to do a full show. I, I could be wrong in that because I know a couple of people showed up at the uh, the gala banquet, but they were just for little short interviews. I think Cameron is the first second-time visitor. Am I wrong in that? Camille? No, Peter, you're right. He is? Oh, well, I, I wasn't sure. Anyway, so Professor Cameron Jeffries, who works with me at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law, is literally as big an expert as you can get in the areas of uh, marine mammals and especially whales. Um, and we thought it was appropriate to bring up this important issue with him. So let's go to our interview uh, that I had um, earlier this week with Cameron Jeffries. <laughs> All right. I am here today with uh, my colleague at the Faculty of Law, University of Alberta, Cam Jeffries, who is our resident expert in all things whales, dolphins, marine mammals, and sharks. Not a marine mammal, but still an expert on sharks. Uh, Cam, it, it, it delights me to recognize you are the first repeat guest ever on Pawn Order. Yeah, wonderful. What an honor. The award-winning, Clawby award-winning Pawn Order. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> All right. We uh, wanted to have you on today because there has been big news. Um, there's been a lot of big news in the animal law world. But one of the, the big things that uh, we've noted, uh, we talked about on last week's episode, was that Japan has left the International Whaling uh, Commission. And uh, we wanted to bring you on to get your take on that. And perhaps you could start just by filling in our listeners who may not be aware, like, what is the International Whaling Commission? Sure. So it's a good place to start. So the International Whaling Commissioner, the IWC, uh, was formed in 1946 as the international organization under the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. So its mandate is essentially to uh, oversee the implementation of the treaty, and it becomes the organization through which participating states uh, are able to kind of achieve the regulatory objectives of, of the the, uh, the treaty regime that, that was created post-World War II, uh, and that mandate traditionally has been the sustainable utilization of whales, of the great whales, so uh, the large species that were the kind of the traditional target of, of whaling enterprises for millennia, really, uh, 
before um, uh, before that uh, convention came into force. So before that, it was uh, is it fair to say like one of the big reasons for having them was to regulate because it was kind of the wild west, and I guess that whales were on the brink of extinction, many species. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say that there was definitely a history of over-exploitation. So one of the problems was the international community actually didn't know how the whales were doing because it's, it was a difficult kind of population to assess, especially when you're dealing with the high seas. So uh, there was an understanding that that overfishing, as it was called for, for whales, could lead to over-exploitation, decimation of populations. And anecdotally, we knew that whalers were moving from species to species. So they were moving down uh, kind of different species as they depleted one population or one uh, species, and it was no longer commercially viable to, to continue with that. So pre-World War II, there were a couple attempts to uh, formalize an agreement. These weren't successful. Post-World War II, kind of a new order is emerging at the international level, and uh, the parties again come together in Washington, D.C., and uh, and and strike this agreement. So it, it, we got to be careful here. I don't want to dig into international law and all its depths and orders, but again, just to give a foundation for what's going on here, um, how, how does what, what lawmaking power, as it is, as you would say, does the International Whaling uh, Commission actually have? Yeah. So it has a regulatory schedule, which is contemplated as part of the mandate of. Um, the organization, and so that is really its its lawmaking kind of uh, or adaptable mechanism. So uh, the parties could get together annually or every two years, and they would adjust the regulatory schedule and set quotas for different species based on really the information they were getting back from what catches were and and what um, observers were seeing out in the ocean when they were going after these species. Now you're right. I mean. There, there was a, a concern about the functionality of, of the law they were creating, but I think the major concerns, especially for kind of the first 25 years of the IWC's existence, weren't so much that it was struggling to set quotas, but rather whether or not those quotas were being abided by. Um, so you had a number of states that would get a quota and they would underreport. And so Russia was quite famous for that, um, dramatically underreporting. Um, what they were actually taking. And those historical records kind of came out uh, post, you know, Glasnost and Perestroika and all that sort of good stuff. So uh, we know that that was one of the, the um, um, kind of weaknesses of it. Similarly, monitoring and enforcement is weak when you're talking about a hunt that's happening on, on the high seas in, in many instances. And of course, it, like all international conventions, um, the, the, the ability to bind all states depends upon the willingness of those states to be bound. Is that fair to say? Yeah, in this situation, it's consent-based, right? So it's it's uh, participation um, of the states with the organization and, and the belief that, that it's moving towards the right uh, kind of end result for, for the target of that uh, international law. Okay, um, so let's talk about Japan's history in the, in, in the whaling uh, uh, commission. See, they've had a, a controversial history. We have talked about that on past episodes of Paw and Order. Um, can you give us a summary of, of Japan's approach to the IWC? Sure. So, I mean, whenever you get into these international organizations, you obviously have a number of countries that are coming with, with different angles or different national agendas, and it's a highly political, political regime. Um, Japan was the second longest tenured state to participate in the IWC. They joined in the early 1950s, and they, you know, had had really seen it through right until their announcement at the end of 2018 that they were going to be withdrawing. So, but a lot of states have had kind of 
controversial relationships within the scheme. So Canada, right, is a good example because we're not, you know, uh, infallible here. We we withdrew in 1982 over concerns of our Indigenous hunt and how uh, emerging constitutional obligations would interact with a, a law-making uh, body, kind of setting some of these structures. So we've been out. Uh, other countries like Norway and Iceland have had an interesting kind of interaction with it also. Uh, they are two of the, the you know leaders in the whaling industry as well. Um, Norway said kind of we're, we're going to go our own way and they created a, a kind of um, an associated international organization called NAMCO, um, which does more of a studying kind of thing as opposed to a regulatory thing. Iceland withdrew and then they came back, but they lodged an objection to the uh, moratorium which was voted on in 1982 and became effective in 1986. So Norway said, okay, we're going to go and do our whaling. Uh, Iceland said, we're going to go and whale, but they ended up coming back with an objection. Japan, I think to their credit, said, we're going to stay the course um, and we are going to use our diplomatic channels at the IWC to try and um, overturn that ban as opposed to leave. Let's just talk about that because you, you referred to the moratorium a couple of times. So what exactly is the moratorium? Mm-hmm. So there was really a, a, a kind of a, a shift in international perspectives on whaling that occurred in the 1970s. The famous Greenpeace Save the Whales campaign, which is probably one of the most famous uh, and successful environmental campaigns ever, uh, really changed kind of our perspective to um, whale conservation. And at that moment in time, important states were also moving away from commercial whaling. So Canada shuttered its last, right, its last whaling operations in the 1970s. The states did as well. Great Britain was moving away from it. Uh, but there were other countries that were still, you know, pursuing whaling for their, their domestic supply of, of uh, product and stuff like that. Um, but with successive efforts, finally in 1982, the parties to the IWC agreed to pass what's known as the, the moratorium on commercial whaling. And if you take a look at the language, and it was inserted in the regulatory schedule, it was initially meant to be temporary. So they were going to take stock, essentially, of what um, was happening with the world's uh, whale populations, and then would look to a return to a... Um, a more new sustainable yeah a sustainable right that and that was the mandate of the organization right it was one of the first sustainable use uh, organizations didn't have much of an animal welfare uh, ethos at all um, until a little bit later but um, that was voted on in 1982 and then it, it had some time to become effective so it really took force in 1986 and it's been in force ever since so it hasn't been temporary like it initially was supposed to be nor do I think, and this would be Japan's argument, that it was necessarily needed for certain species? So the minke whale is a good example. Um, it is one of the smaller, large uh, whale species, if that makes sense. And it, it has some of the most robust populations. And that was the predominant target of the Japanese scientific whaling program in the Southern Ocean under the JARPA-2 program, and then under the new Rep-A program, which was the most recent one, as well as uh, Iceland and Norway's commercial harvest. 
Yeah, let's talk about that in a bit more depth. But you're right, uh, and it is one of the smaller species. I've been to, uh, last year I went to Iceland, and they have an amazing museum where they have these full-scale models of every whale. It's just this huge hangar, and they have every whale. The minke's like a, it's like a big dolphin, like a very big dolphin, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a dolphin on steroids, but it's yeah. like compared to like any of the other whales, yeah. it's like it's just dwarfed. But anyway, yeah. um, let's get back to what we're talking about here. Um, yeah, so Japan, I mean, I know, uh, having lived in New Zealand for quite some time, New Zealand and Australia essentially came to take the position that whaling was uh, immoral, uh, more or less, and uh, it's it's not the right thing to do, and we shouldn't whale at all. And a lot of conflict arose with Japan. I believe in our last podcast, we talked about the scientific program that Japan essentially... You know, many, I don't want to ascribe too much, but many people believe that the scientific program was just a way in which uh, Japan could whale, uh, continue to do some form of commercial whaling, and it ran them into a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. That's right. So the scientific whaling exception was something um, that we might say is a little bit anachronistic now. So it was common in early wildlife protection treaties to have a provision that said you could do a lethal take for the purposes of understanding science about the organisms, because we didn't have the same sort of scientific process that we have today. So now you can use satellite imaging to tell you know, how many uh, members of a certain whale population are out in the middle of the ocean, or you can do non-lethal biopsy, or you can do these different things that weren't available to, to the scientists back in the day. But as Japan would say, you can only figure out how to humanely kill whales by killing them. Well, there's right, and and there's there's a so there's a big discussion there, and um, you know, a lot of the early work that went into a discussion about the humane killing of whales was something that was driven by technological advances, that was driven by time to death measurements, uh, that was driven by all these different aspects that were kind of well ahead of I think of a lot of other animal species. So it was really a um, a kind of a, a testing ground for some of that. NAMCO, which is what Norway does, does a lot of work on that. And so NAMCO actually sends experts to indigenous populations and says, these are the most humane ways and technologies that we use to kill uh, to kill whales, and then they give training. And so there's a whole other discussion to be had there about the welfare side of it. But um, that's right. So Japan continued the scientific processes, and a lot of people said this is a, you know, this is a fiction. Because you're taking advantage of, of a provision of this old treaty um, to pursue a commercial whaling program, in essence. There's no restriction on what you can do with the meat. So it was entering meat markets. I think that was fairly uncontested. And there was limited science that was coming out of it from JARPA 2 or even the new REP-A program. And that was litigated in the International Court of Justice. So Australia and uh, with New Zealand intervening, initiated proceedings in 2010. The judgment from 2014 said... Uh, essentially, there is some science that's happening, but your program is not for scientific purposes, as per the language of the convention. Japan said, we respect the judgment. They are a good citizen at international law generally. They take international diplomacy uh, quite strongly and said, we'll go back and revise our program in accordance with essentially the, the wisdom of the court. They did that. Out comes New Rep A. They're still whaling in the sanctuary. Now the program is just has been adjusted. Okay, so what changed? Because suddenly in December, Japan decides to pull out. Why, why did they decide to withdraw from the commission? Yeah, so, so and this gets us into, I think, the really interesting story, which is what's been happening at the IWC since that moratorium came into force. You have a pro-preservationist faction that's emerged, so uh, Great Britain and Australia and, and the U.S., with the exception of indigenous whaling, a limited indigenous hunt, has said, we really value whales differently. 
So we value whale watching. We value um, the sentience of the creatures. We value kind of the importance to the ecosystem, those sorts of things. And then you've had a, a faction of states which are pro-utilization and kind of original interpretation of the treaty that said this organization is for this continued purpose and we should return to that. And Japan has used its diplomatic um, uh, corridors and channels at the IWC repeatedly to try and get the commercial moratorium overturned. They tried again at the last meeting of the IWC in Brazil and were unsuccessful. And I think that the writing was on the wall that they weren't going to get commercial more the, the commercial whaling reinstated, that the moratorium, despite initially meant to be temporary, is probably here to stay. Um, and I think that, that that's is starting to signal the change that's happening at the IWC or continues to happen as it enters, I think, a third phase of regulation, which is going to be looking beyond commercial whaling to other things like climate change and bycatch and ship strikes, uh, environmental pollution, plastics in the ocean. Those are the real threats to whales today. Commercial whaling has, you know, it's a visceral response, but the numbers pale in comparison, and I think the threats pale in comparison to some of these other hazards. So Japan said, essentially, we're, we're not going to achieve that objective. Um, we're going to withdraw. We'll start commercial whaling in accordance with our other international obligations under the law of the sea, which says we will limit our whaling to our 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone. Um, that's permissible, right, under, under the law of the sea, uh, and that's what we're going to pursue moving forward. So it's kind of a, there's a lot of things that come out of this, and one of the more interesting impacts is no more Japanese whaling in the Southern Ocean. It's kind of interesting. They've left the convention, and arguably they're no longer governed by it, but they are no longer going to be doing the scientific whaling that made them so unpopular in the Southern Ocean. So so what that means, from what I've read about this, is that the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary is now a true Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. Yeah, I think that's right. And this will be the first time in a number of centuries that there hasn't been whaling in, in the Southern Ocean. And the IWC was one of the first organizations that was able to create protected areas or spaces in the high seas. This is very unique. Even now, in 2019, there's only a handful of um, international institutions that have this mandate. So we have an Indian Ocean Sanctuary, we have the Southern Ocean Sanctuary, and we have a push from IWC states to create one in the, the South Pacific or South Atlantic. So those are all, also areas that we have some, some key interest in. And just as Japan was failing to get its commercial moratorium overturned, the commercial moratorium overturned, other states have been failing to get new sanctuaries created. And I think what we might see and what an unintended kind of you know, effect of this might be is that the IWC is able to shift its priorities if there's a changing membership. And I don't know exactly if, if other states will follow kind of IWC's or the Japan's um, withdrawal. Uh, you know, there's there's limited whaling in Russia, limited whaling in South Korea. Maybe those states might follow. Um, but there are other states that don't have much interest in whaling that are part of the IWC because of their alignment with Japan and some of the foreign direct investment that was happening to get support for some of Japan's initiatives at the IWC. So those countries might leave and that might open the door to the necessary majority votes that can create some of these new kind of 21st century necessary protectionist measures for the long-term viability and sustainable kind of existence of these whales. 
Okay, let's talk about a couple of bits of that. First of all, is there any risk that uh, Japan has in the past not, uh, proposed under the scientific uh, uh, exception, not just to target the minke whales, but to target other whales? Is there any risks that uh, some of the more endangered species of whales will suddenly come under scrutiny by the Japanese hunting fleet? Yeah, and we'll have to wait to see what the details of the commercial whaling program are going to be. So it's, uh, I think it's going to take effect at the end of June in 2019, but we're waiting for more details on what the quotas or what the target species would be. Um, the hope but, is... But can I just can I just ask, like, yeah. what, what governs this or what restraint? This is just Japan essentially now asserting its own domestic authority, and if it puts up quotas and it puts up restrictions, those are just because the Japanese feel that's the right thing to do. So, for example, if they wanted to give their fishing fleet unlimited license within the 200-mile nautical limit, they could do that, correct? So, so I mean, that, that raises an interesting question because now we get out of the confines of the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling and we get into a discussion of what other binding law in the area might say. So we can look at things like the Law of the Sea Convention, which has two provisions on, on marine mammals, Articles 65 and 120, which creates a unique scheme, lex specialis at law, for marine mammal conservation or utilization. Um, and that's what my book kind of focuses on for, for a different trajectory for whaling moving forward or, or marine mammal conservation more generally. Now, in, in their removal, Japan said we will also give effect to other international law in the area as we develop our program. So there is an obligation under Article 65 for utilization of marine mammals in your exclusive economic zone to consider and to cooperate with what international law is telling us. So I would be very surprised if we saw Japan targeting endangered species that are recognized as endangered by the IWC or under CITES, right, the trade in or the convention that's limiting trade in some of these species or through discussions on the Convention on Biological Diversity. I would be quite surprised because of the other international law that's out there that is saying we shouldn't be targeting these species. So I would be surprised, although it has a less binding effect, if you will, than what direct participation with the the IWC would have and, and what it's kind of set down as its quotas. And there was some issue with the Japanese target of uh, humpback and fin whales in the Southern Ocean. They had moved away from that. In, in recent years, so it was predominantly focused on the minke whale in um, recent history. So I think we'll see, right, we'll, we'll see what is available to them based on the species moving through their exclusive economic zone, and then we'll also see what they decide to target on based on what the international community is telling us um, could sustain something like a harvest. So one thing I know we'll, we'll we've finally seen the end of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, there, there should be no more clashes between Greenpeace boats and Japanese whaling boats because I don't believe uh, that'll be going on in Japanese waters. Right. That probably won't. So when you say Japanese waters, we have to be careful because the territorial sea, which is the 10 nautical miles from the coastline, is where states have more direct control. Um, I think that you would definitely not see direct clashes happening in those 10 nautical miles for the fear of uh, vessels being detained or captured by the Japanese Coast Guard equivalent. Um, in the exclusive economic zone, you have a little less direct control from, from the coastal state. So, you know, you might see some, some activity there. Um, you know, we have a couple cases in recent history where there has been you know, confrontation or utilization of, of protest in those sorts of ways. And Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd haven't shied away from those sorts of activities. But 
Um, definitely in the territorial sea, I think you won't see that, but maybe in the exclusive economic zone, which is still a long way from shore, right, when you think about it, um, and difficult to, to patrol in many respects. You might see some of that activity, but um, it's probably l uh, more doubtful. Okay, so let, let's finish up with this. What, 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 is your, what is your take on this in terms of developing uh, uh, a, 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 the development of the law protecting whales uh, in the ocean? What is your view of what this latest move means? Yeah, so, so unfortunately for me, it cuts both ways. Uh, I've advocated strongly that the IWC should focus on an interpretation of its mandate that says we really need to take a role in tackling the modern threats to whales. Um, climate change and bycatch and ship strikes and entanglement and environmental pollution, those are the real threats to the sustainability of whales moving forward. From a personal perspective, right, I'm opposed to commercial whaling. From my own kind of uh, approach to, to the issue, that said, there is a cultural perspective to that, there is a Western perspective to that, that isn't necessarily shared uh, by other jurisdictions. And probably there is an ability to use a sustainable use. I think that commercial whaling will eventually dwindle, okay? As we've seen in, in Canada and the US and Australia and Great Britain, I, I do think in other jurisdictions, the demand for the product locally will, will eventually subside. Um, but, you know, our continued focus on it does, I think, distract us from some of these larger issues which are really going to threaten um, whale populations as we move forward and we need to look no clo no further than the right whale off of the the Atlantic coast where you have right a very limited population that is threatened by ship strikes and entanglements in Canadian and American waters now those populations continue to suffer from commercial whaling we have a legacy of commercial whaling these are animals that can live over 100 years or slow to reproduce etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we're still feeling those effects and so we can't, we can't ignore that with commercial whaling, but what we can do is take stock now. The international community can come together and say, how do we start to tackle uh, some of these other issues which are going to really, I think, dominate um, the discussion in, in the 21st century as we move forward. Thanks very much, as always, Cam. Great to have you on Paw in Order to uh, take us through the ins and outs of the IWC. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks again. Heroes and Zeros. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Peter, our hero this week is uh, a little unexpected for an animal law podcast, but the Hero Award is going to Health Canada bureaucrats who are in charge of drafting the new Canada Food Guide. And the reason they're getting this award is because the Canada Food Guide is actually pretty good. It came out this week. It reflects the scientific evidence and nutritional evidence about what's good for humans to eat. And they resisted the influence of the food industry in drafting this guide. Peter, that hasn't always happened. In the past, the food industry has uh, had a huge say in what the food guide actually says. And a particularly big dairy and big meat lobbied very hard during um, this process of revising the Canada Food Guide and releasing a new version of it. But the bureaucrats successfully resisted their influence. And for that, we think that they should be applauded. Now, Camille, I haven't looked at the new food guide, and I remember the old food guide, and I remember that when I was growing up, I may be paraphrasing here, but I was told if I didn't have five servings of dairy a day that I would die within the week. Oh, yeah. You, that, your bones has that been would be, removed? <laughs> your bones would be so brittle that they would break, and yeah, you would pretty much just die. 
oh my God, I need calcium. I was told about calcium day in and day out. We had to drink our little milk boxes in school, all because of the Canada Food Guide. And I was told dairy, 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 or die. It is amazing, Camille. I I seem to still be alive. I'm not sure how, but I seem to still be alive despite not having dairy for some uh, 14 years. Yeah, it's incredible, Peter. I'm, I'm glad that you're still kicking. And I'm glad that dairy is now out of the food guide. It's not out completely, but here's what the, here's what the guide says. Instead of having these categories of food so and saying you need a certain number of servings from them every day, and dairy was one of those categories, the way they're now presenting it is here's a plate. And half of your plate should be filled with fruit and veggies. A quarter of the plate should be filled with grains, like whole grains, like wheat or um, other cooked items, quinoa, etc. And then a quarter of the plate is devoted to protein sources. And protein lumps meat and dairy together with all other protein sources. They're not their own separate categories. Uh, the protein section includes things like chickpeas, like tofu, like nuts, like other plant-based sources of protein. And the food guide even says that people should choose plant-based sources of proteins and fats more often and emphasizes that people should be drinking water and not things like fruit juice or dairy. So, Peter, this is a huge impact, um, we think, for animals because the food guide is one of the government's most requested documents. It certainly does influence school lunch programs, uh, the way that people eat. Uh, in a myriad of ways. And we think this is going to be really great in promoting uh, healthier plant-based diets that relies less on animal products. And of course, that's good for animals. Uh, Big Dairy, as I mentioned, they've had a huge impact on this food guide in the past. They're fearsome lobbyists in the halls of parliament. Their lobbying strategy has actually been compared by uh, federal cabinet ministers to that of the National Rifle Association in the States. Uh, they're, they're, they're feared by legislators and they're in there with meetings all the time. So the fact that the bureaucrats were able to resist them, they refused to have closed door meetings with the food industry, including big meat and big dairy. And they said that those players had to go through the regular consultation process on this guide. I think they deserve so much credit for that. Yeah, it's it's. I think what's important to come out of this is like what annoyed me about the food guide, and I think annoyed you and others as well, was the idea that dairy was somehow essential. It's just offensive to both common sense and, frankly, scientific evidence that suggests that dairy is not an essential product. And I, I recognize that dairy can provide nutrients you know, in, in, in a way similar to, to plants and other items. Um, but, but, but you need to fairly acknowledge the costs of those nutrients because there are downsides to drinking dairy milk as well, including cholesterol levels and other matters. Sorry, not cholesterol matters, but in terms of the fats and, and, and uh, 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 risks of disease that come from elevated fat content uh, products. And, and I think you need to, to, to recognize that and treat the evidence fairly. And I think what's be, what's so what's so amazing here is I guess I don't know why we should be amazed, Camille, that um, scientific evidence won the day, but that's the stage we're at in human society. <laughs> um, and it was I, I I felt some of the media coverage was just fantastic because I, I didn't read every paper um, or listen to every um, um, debate on this on the radio or on television, but it seemed to me I did read some wonderful articles in the Toronto Star, in the Globe and Mail that were really applauding this and saying good for Health Canada and finally getting around resisting the lobbyists and actually making decisions based on science. Totally. And for that, they are so deserving of this week's hero. Absolutely. For every hero, um, 
Camille, there is a zero. And our friend today is Stuart Skinner. Stuart, uh, Stuart Skinner is a uh, pig farmer who, let me just say, uh, I'll always, you know, I'm about to call him a zero and he is a zero, but um, Stuart, you know, had the bravery to write an article in the Toronto Star uh, explaining his views on humane meat. So I'll give him credit for having the bravery to do that. And before we lambaste him for some of his opinions, Camille, do you want to start with Mr. Skinner and talk about what he said? I do. So Stuart is a pig farmer, apparently, uh, I believe in Ontario, and he wrote a piece about why he believes there is such a thing as humane meat. And this piece was the other side of the question um, that was argued by our good friend, Jess Scott Reed, who wrote a piece arguing that there's no such thing as humane meat. So uh, she pointed out that there's no animal protection laws applying to animals on farms, uh, no regulations of any sort like that. And she pointed to conditions that are standard in the industry, I think made a pretty compelling case. And Stuart, instead of delving into issues about animals and their mistreatment, he kind of pulls out every trope there is and every ridiculous argument in favor of, of eating meat, including, Peter, that plants might be sentient. I, I like it, Camille, but it's there's lots of irony because in his argument, he said arguments for veganism are often supported by flawed logic. Well, Stuart is no stranger to flawed logic, let's just say. <laughs> I mean, That's Stuart, an understatement. Stuart, Stuart says, to begin with, there are no inhumane food products. The only inhumane condition surrounding food is hunger. Oh my God, Stuart, where do we start? Like literally, it's absolute, it's, it's so ludicrous. Like your definition of inhumane makes no sense to begin with. Um, and second of all, how do you connect hunger to this particular choice of food product? Meat is an essential part of fighting hunger around the world. On what? What's your evidence for that, Stuart? Well, it's nothing more than a bald assertion. You know, the interesting thing, of course, when it comes to meat and hunger, is that it takes many, many times the land, the resources, the water to feed all this grain that we're growing to pigs than it would be just to feed it to humans directly. And that would be a great way, I think, to combat hunger. There's just no support for the idea. In fact, the UN, the UN has come out with study after study suggesting that with population growth, transition to a plant-based diet is the best thing possible to avert concerns about food-based poverty. And Stuart's like, oh no, the only inhumane thing is hunger. Well, again, like, first of all, you've twisted the meaning of the word inhumane to suit your own purposes in a way that makes no sense. And then second of all, you're, 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 you conclude the sentence by saying the only inhumane condition surrounding food is hunger, which is just completely flawed. But let's talk about the plants, Camille, because I can't leave the plants out because that's kind of hilarious. Yeah, we need to get into the plants. So Stuart talks about why he thinks that plants might actually be sentient because Peter... Sentiency is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as the ability to perceive and feel things. A it's a blurry line, line Camille. It's a blurry, a blurry line. line. And Stuart references some studies from the University of Guelph about plant communication that finds that soybean plants can detect harmful weeds and change behavior in response to stressors. And so Stuart's very concerned about plants and whether they might be sentient and whether we should be eating them. And so vegans are hypocrites, I guess. So let's be clear, Stuart, because I want to understand your logic to make sure that it's not flawed. Plants can feel some things, so therefore, 
everything else can feel some things, so therefore it's okay to eat everything because plants can feel some things, and if you eat plants uh, instead of eating animals, you're essentially being a hypocrite. Is that, I, I, I think that's what he's getting at. It's not really clear because in addition to flawed logic, um, Stewart seems to have an aversion to good writing, but, you know, what can I tell you? Yeah, what can you say? So, I mean, A... Oh, regardless of your diet choice, you are eating something that was once alive and killed for the specific purpose of feeding people. I don't know where to start with the logic there, Camille. Apparently, anything that feels something is fair game. You can't... You According to Stewart's logic, you can't draw distinctions on anything other than feeling. So, I don't know about you, Camille. My next meal may involve a human being because, hey... <laughs> Once you're going down the road, everybody's fair game, says Stuart. Like, uh, you yes. can't draw moral lines because everybody feels. Stuart's basically arguing for cannibalism, I guess. I guess. So, like, you know, first we have crap. this issue of degree, right? So what do plants perceive? Okay, maybe they perceive harmful stimuli, but they don't have a central nervous system. They don't have um, complex cognitive abilities like animals and humans do. Um, certainly they're not being confirmed in uh, those conditions that would implicate their central nervous system. I mean, the idea that you can't draw distinctions between different types of cognition and sentience is just, it's asinine. There's just, there's no, there's no comparison in terms of that you are drawing, essentially, you're overlaying a moral question about whether it's right to do something over a scientific question. And then you're saying that differences in degree have no bearing on the scientific question. That's just, it, it's absolutely idiotic. I remember once having a discussion, Camille, with a botanist friend of mine when I was really learning about my mushrooms and like you know mushrooms are interesting beings right because they're not plants obviously mushrooms are actually higher up the chain of sentience you know arguably than plants to begin with and i remember making this like fun argument with her about how ooh, like really as a vegan you might want to give up the mushrooms and she was just like it's just again she told me it was asinine which i knew it was because i was joking with her to begin with and she says like the leap the leap from mushrooms to even the most like basic animal being is like it's a massive evolutionary leap it's like they're not the same things yeah and then you know the other issue which always makes me laugh about the plants arguments is like okay let's assume for a second that plants do feel pain they don't but let's just let's just say they do yeah, why it, is you, that an argument? <laughs> I know, but you kill so many more plants to then eat animals who've been eating plants their whole lives. And if you just like feed the plants directly to humans first, so like none of it makes any sense from any perspective. We cross a line, Camille, when we begin to shame others for how they choose to eat in their quest to survive and thrive. Like, again, then eat anything. Like it just his arguments don't make any sense. It's like you can't shame other. Uh, I mean, shaming. Let's leave that aside. But the idea that we cannot set limits on what people eat, we do that all the time. He's arguing for some free movement to eat whatever you want. We already have all sorts of limits on the amount, the ability to eat certain types of animals because we just ban you from doing it. Like he has this idea that somehow eating in your quest to survive and thrive. Sorry for the sound effects. That's just the way I envisage Stuart um, speaking um, is somehow this unlimited potential. But that's what laws do. We make moral choices and we put them over overlays so that you can't do certain things. The idea that somehow because, well, everybody has to have the ability to make individual food choices. No, you don't.
Like, that's not the way society works. I hate to break it to you, Stuart. No, liberty is restricted in all kinds of ways to reduce harm to others, to prevent suffering for, for all kinds of legitimate reasons. Peter, there's one more argument of his I really just have to get into. He says, Oh, please do. Please do, Camille. It's an evolutionary argument or something. He's like, the amazing world we live in today is the product of millions of years of refinement. Every living thing on this planet has an evolutionary desire to sustain its species while also having a place in the larger circle of life. So it's this it's this circle of life argument that we hear sometimes, like, oh, there's a food chain, everyone eats everyone else. And when you get into this idea, this sort of naturalistic fallacy of like what nature intended, what you're ignoring is the fact that we are factory farming billions and billions of animals oh, yes. in completely unnatural ways. We've genetically modified their bodies. They are pumped full of hormones and other drugs in many cases, and they are artificially inseminated. There is nothing, there is no semblance of nature or naturalness about their lives. Ah, uh, thank you, Stuart. This has been very cathartic. I, I have to say, Camille, I did hear something about Stuart Skinner that's really interesting. Although we were not fans of his article, I believe he is being lobbied to run as the MP candidate for the now vacant riding of Dauphin Swan River Nipawa. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of an inside joke, so if you're not a regular listener to this podcast, that's the riding of an M- MP who often gets our Zero Award because he's really anti-animal. So I don't know, maybe Stuart is, is set to replace him. Robert, Robert, I have to, you know, I love calling him out whenever we can. Robert Sopak, I, I, I think Stuart's being, you know, lobbied to run for as the conservative candidate in that riding because, you know, this article makes a lot of good sense, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure Sopak would really enjoy it. He probably shared it on social media. <laughs> All right, well, that was... Camille, I have to say that was an enjoyable way to end. Um, that was, that was a kind lot of a fun. long rant, but it was fun. Yes, it was a fun rant. Um, that brings us to the end of our anniversary episode, Camille, of Pawn Order. Camille, did you get me any cake? Oh. I feel like it's our anniversary. We deserve some cake. Okay, when you're in Toronto, we'll, we'll have some cake. We'll have to have some cake, have some toast, have some champagne. We are down. That is one full year, our anniversary episode. We were thrilled to bring it to you. Please let us know any comments or thoughts you have on the show. We would love to hear them. And now's a good time on our one-year anniversary. If you haven't left, left us a review yet on iTunes, but you're a regular listener, pop in there and say what you think. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.